Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Mark's Gospel. Mark chapter 1. Before we read this passage this morning, I, I want you to do me a favor and, and use your imagination. I, and I mean no disrespect towards the reading of the Word of God this morning as we do this, but use your imagination and imagine that you're back in time in first century Rome and you are assembled on the Lord's Day with the believers there. Now, if you are, you're not in a church building like we worship. Most likely, you've been forced underground and you are meeting under the city in the catacombs because of the persecution of Christians under Nero's rule. And if it's discovered that you are a believer, you would not only be arrested immediately, but you would get the death sentence. And so you were gathered in the tombs, that is in the graves, kids, uh, under the city of Rome. And someone comes to your meeting and, and they read to you the recently received letter from uh, Mark on the Gospel of Mark. And they begin to read that gospel. And this morning we have the privilege of reading the same words in our own language this morning. So let us give attention to God's word. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you, God, so much that you speak to your people and that you have spoken to us this morning, Lord, and giving us your word in our own language. Lord, we take that for granted so much because we have so many copies of the Bible. But Lord, what a privilege it is to hear, thus saith the Lord. And we pray this morning that we would not just hear the words read or spoken about, but Lord, we pray for your Holy Spirit to work in our hearts to stir within us the faith, Lord, and to cause that faith to grow uh, to, uh, to follow you, to trust you. To glorify you, Lord, in all that we do and say, think, act, Lord, in every aspect of our lives. We pray in your name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, our response to the words of Mark's gospel may not be the same as, as those early Christians' response. I, I, I hope it is. But I think I don't think it's too far-fetched to say that for Christians in the first century who were receiving Mark's gospel for the first time, that these were words of life. I mean, these were people who were ready to die for the one whom they believed. And the reality is that they most likely would die. Many of our brothers and sisters in Christ were put to death by, by Nero. 
And so as they were attending church on, on that Sunday and they heard the Gospel of Mark read, they weren't merely just attending church because that's what you do and then you leave and then you go do whatever you want the rest of the day. But they were coming to hear the words of hope that would strengthen their faith so that they could face the circumstances of the possibility of death that they were most likely facing that week, if not in, in the days to come. And they wanted to hear and they wanted to know this Jesus that they had placed their, their faith in. And they wanted to know that it, and when they died, that it was not for nothing. That if they were caught and arrested, that they would gladly give up their life for their Savior. And it was out of that knowledge of Him that they gathered to worship and, and to sing His praises. And so this morning, I hope that we would come with that same kind of attention to God's Word, to hear Him speak to us today. And so let's look at this wonderful Gospel, if we might. Now, it's interesting that Mark begins with a Jesus that is larger than life. He doesn't start with a baby Jesus. He doesn't start with a baby uh, with a Jesus who's eight days old that's being uh, taken to the, the temple to be circumcised. He, he doesn't even start with a Jesus that went with his parents as a young man uh, to Jerusalem. But instead, he starts with Jesus who is the King, the Son of the living God. Now, I recognize that in the ESV there's a little note there, the Son of God, that says that in some manuscripts this doesn't belong. But I'm here to tell you that belongs, okay? While some manuscripts don't have it and it's understandable why that might be, it might be a transcription error or something, uh, this is very much a theme of this book. And I'm not going to take the time, but you can read through Mark's Gospel and you can see this idea of the Son of God being repeated over and over and over and over. And most manuscripts do have that. So as we come, we see Jesus, who is the King, the Son of God. But He's not just any King. He is the one who is spoken and promised of God hundreds of years earlier. So He is a King who is anticipated. Now kids, I don't know if you've ever anticipated anything, if you've ever looked forward to anything, maybe your birthday, you know, maybe it was like your brother's and sister's birthday, and you knew that, guess whose birthday was next? It was yours. And so you were looking forward to that. Or maybe it was Christmas morning. Or, or it might have even been your grandparents who said, Hey, guess what? We're going to have you, just you, not your brothers and sisters, just you come over to our house and spend the night. We're going to have a special time together. And you were looking forward to that with great anticipation. So you kept bugging your parents. We as parents know what that's like. Is today the day? Is today the day? Is today the day? And you're like, stop! I'll tell you when it's going to happen. Okay? And you're like, okay, tomorrow. It's tomorrow. And you're like all excited. You know, well, that's, that's what somewhat is happening here. Mark is saying that in his gospel, Christ has finally come. The king that God said that he would send has now come. After thousands of years, what God promised is being fulfilled in Jesus, who is the Christ. Now, I think we have to really grasp what is going on here. It's, it's very noteworthy in the fact merely that God is speaking. Okay, I mean, revealing to his people the fulfillment of his promises. After 400 plus years, God is, is speaking to his people. He has broken the silence. It's been 460 years since the prophet Malachi stood up and said, Thus saith the Lord. And so now the silence has been broken. And so what good news for these Christians in Mark's day 
to hear this gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. What, what good news for our brothers and sisters in the first century Rome. And what good news for us today to hear that God speaks to his people. And, and of course, in our passage today, we're going to see uh, God speaking through John, okay, who's the last of the Old Testament prophets. And as we know from our study in the book of Hebrews, and then soon after that, God would speak through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, where do we get this idea that Jesus is a king? I mean, I don't, I don't know about you, but my translation doesn't say king anywhere in these first eight verses. But, but if you look at the term Messiah in verse 1, that's translated Christ, that means the anointed one. That is, talks about Christ as king. But, but even more importantly than that, John's ministry points to Christ's kingship. Because John is, is a forerunner, okay? Now, kids... A forerunner is, is someone who runs ahead of royalty, like a king or a queen or a duke or, or some really important person. And, and they run ahead uh, of that king and, and they give everybody in the destination, the king is going somewhere, and they run ahead to that destination and they tell everybody, hey, the king is coming, get ready. And so the people can be prepared when he shows up. It sort of reminds me a little bit of the time that my family and I were driving from my parents' house back home, and we lived quite a ways away. And I can't remember, I, I want to say we were traveling through Cincinnati. It might have been Indianapolis. But it was a larger city, and we had just come out of the city, and we were on the interstate, so, you know, traffic is crazy. But all of a sudden, then we notice that the traffic begins to become less and less and less. And we, like, look over on the uh, northbound lane, and there's nobody on the road. That's sort of freaky. And there's not a lot of uh, cars around us. And then we start looking around us and we start noticing people in the woods. People just like walking in and out and like they're searching for something. And we're like, okay, what's going on? And so we turn on the radio and we find out that the President of the United States had just landed in that city that we had come from. And so this evidently, I'm assuming, was the security detail that was clearing everything and making sure everything was safe for the president. Maybe that was the exact route he was going to take. I don't know. But that's a little bit what John was like. Only John wasn't worried about security. He was just worried about people knowing that the, the, the king was coming. And so this morning, uh, as we look at this, we see John was the forerunner to Jesus. Uh, as a matter of fact, in John's gospel, um, chapter 3, verse 28, John says, I am not the Christ but I have been sent before him. That's my job. So John didn't come to have his own uh, you know, televangelist show. He didn't come to plant his own church. He really came to point people to Jesus. And so this morning, what I want to do is I want to notice a couple of things about John the Baptist, okay, uh, as a forerunner, okay? And the first thing I want us to see is that John is a prophesied forerunner. He is a prophesied forerunner. We see that in verses 2 and 3. And then he is also a proclaiming forerunner. A proclaiming forerunner in verses 4 through 8. And, and while Mark wants us, obviously, to see who John is and what his ministry is about, the reason he does that is because he wants us to see who Jesus is. Because only as you understand who John is do you see better and understand who Jesus is. And so really we're looking at John so that we can see Jesus this morning. Okay, so let's look at these points. First of all, John is a prophesied forerunner. We read in verses 2 and 3, 
As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Now, Mark says here that he's quoting from the prophet Isaiah. But really, he's, he's not just quoting from Isaiah. He's actually quoting from a number of different verses. He's quoting from Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Also sort of an allusion to Exodus 23, 20 and the Septuagint. But then he is also quoting from Isaiah 40, verse 3. Now you might say, well then why does he say he's quoting from Isaiah? If he's quoting from these other passages, why didn't he say that as well? Well, that wasn't uncommon in, in Mark's day to, to quote a passage like Isaiah because the main passage that he is quoting is Isaiah 40, verse 3. But he's also quoting other passages that sort of relate to that and sort of explain it. It would be a lot like if I said to you this morning, as David said in the Psalms, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And Christ is the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. He leaves the 99, goes after the one who is lost to save it. Now, I am quoting Psalm 23, 1, right? But I'm also quoting a lot from the New Testament Gospels about Jesus. And that helps you to understand who the shepherd is. Well, that's sort of like what Mark was doing here this morning. So he wasn't trying to be deceptive in any way. He just was pointing us to the Old Testament prophecies about who John was. So let's look, first of all, at the Malachi passage. If you want to get to Malachi, it's really simple. Just go back to Matthew, and then just go one book backwards to the Old Testament. And that's where Malachi is. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. We read these words. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now, as you take a few minutes and look at this, you see that really the Lord is the one who is coming to his temple. But before he comes... There's this messenger, there's this forerunner that's going to come and to prepare the way. And what Mark is telling us by quoting this is that John the Baptist is this messenger. He is the one that comes before the Lord to declare the way. But, but Mark is also telling us a little bit about Jesus as well because he is saying that Jesus is the Lord of hosts himself. He is God uh, who has come. And, and actually, if you look on into Malachi uh, verses 2 and 3, you even see a little bit more about Jesus, uh, that uh, he is the one who comes to judge the motives and the intentions of our hearts. Uh, we read, but, he who can, but who can endure the day of his coming? This is of the Lord of hosts. And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. And so you see that there is this messenger that, that comes uh, to call God's people to repentance because he knows that, that, that the Lord of hosts is like the refiner's fire, that Jesus Christ is like that. And brothers and sisters, that should cause us pause this morning as we hear those words, to know that God sees, and to know that God knows our every thought this morning. 
that God is not blind to who we are and, and what you are. But God sees and He knows us as we are. And so we see that God sends His messenger beforehand to prepare the way. But a, 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 the main passage that he's referring to is Isaiah 40. So turn over to Isaiah 40, if you would. Um, verse 3. And, and we, where we read these words. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Now, to understand this, you have to understand a little bit about Isaiah's message. Isaiah is, is 66 chapters long, and if you were going to divide it into sections, it would be really two sections. Isaiah 1 through 39, which is Isaiah's message of judgment upon Israel. And then Isaiah 40 through 66, which is Isaiah's message of hope for Israel. The, the first part, God gives Isaiah this message to come to Israel and say that God is going to bring about his judgment upon his people if they do not repent of their sin. And of course, God, knowing that his people will not repent of his sin, uh, prophesies that he will raise up a couple of nations uh, to take them into exile. First of all, he'll raise up Assyria, but then eventually Babylon. And, and God will take his people away. It's much like cutting down the, a, a tree, one of the cedars of Lebanon. And you can imagine this massive tree falling down. But God prophesies and he says, even though I will bring my judgment upon you, he, though, he says, I will preserve a holy seed. He said, I will preserve the root of Jesse. And, and you imagine a tree being cut down. What's left? The stump, right? And the stump can grow back. And God is saying he's... He's, he's uh, preserving the root of Jesse, that stump of which will come hope. But in, in the first 39 verses of Isaiah, there is no hope. As a matter of fact, Isaiah 39 really ends with God prophesying that Babylon is going to, to take his people into exile. And that's exactly what happens. And they are there for almost 100 years, like 70 years they're in, in exile. And so here you are uh, many, many years later, about 100 years later, and uh, God's people are now being released. And that's where we see Isaiah 40 picking up, where it's this message of hope, where God is, is uh, calling his people to return home in Isaiah 40. And if you see in Isaiah 40, God promises that Israel's punishment and judgments are going to be removed, that her warfare will end, as he says in verses 1 and 2, that her sins are going to be pardoned. What great news! But these comforts, as he begins in Isaiah 40, comfort, comfort, but these comforts can only happen if God himself is present with his people. And so what we have here in this passage is God talking about the necessity for his, and the call to his people to repent of their sins as they come back from exile. Uh, so in Isaiah um, 40, verse 3, God is calling them back home, a voice that's calling in the wilderness um, like a shepherd cares for his flock, so the Lord will tend to his people, and he will bring them back home. And that's sort of what, this, what Isaiah is about, is this, this exodus, this new exodus, back to the new Jerusalem. Um, unfortunately, although God causes people to repentance, they don't repent. They don't. They're still hard-hearted. As a matter of fact, once they get home, then they begin to put the Lord on trial. And they say, you know, God, now that we think about it, you know, maybe 
you're not as powerful as the Babylonian gods. And maybe that's why we were sent into exile. Or maybe you're a god that you're not faithful to keep your covenant promises. And so that's why we went into exile. And they began to accuse the Lord. Of course, God is always gracious. And he was gracious to his people. And he said to them, the reason you went into exile was because of your sin and your rebellion against me. And so what God does is, even in the midst of their continued sin and rebellion, God promises that there would be one who would come one day, the suffering servant, the king's cross, the king who was going to the cross would come, and he would die for his people, and he would be raised again, and that king, that suffering servant, would not only bring his people, the Jews, back to the new Jerusalem, but he would bring them all the peoples of all the nations, or all the peoples, all of his people from all the nations to this new Jerusalem, and he would have a, a new people. And so, before this takes place, though, there is this voice, before this Messiah comes, before this king comes, before this suffering servant comes, there would be the voice of one coming in the wilderness calling his people to repentance and and that's where that's who John is he is that one that's coming before the Christ to to call his people to repentance and so John is very important but he's not the most important and that brings us to our second point that John is not only a prophesied forerunner he was not only told about in the old testament but he is a proclaiming forerunner he's one that comes to preach um, he is one that points us to the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and John comes um, in authority and power. He comes as one who speaks as the Old Testament prophets. Look at verse 6. Um, one thing I want to encourage you, anytime you read the Bible, pay attention to every detail. We've heard so many stories in the Bible, and we've read so many passages, that we oftentimes just sort of skim over stuff and we don't even notice it sometimes. But look at, look at chapter 1, verse 6. Why would Mark include this in his gospel? Who cares what John wore or what he ate? I mean, why is that so important? This is a very concise gospel. He's like, boom, boom, boom. He's moving through the life of Jesus. And so he's only saying what's necessary. But he thinks it's necessary to tell us you know, what John was wearing. Well, some people would say, you know, that the reason why John wore these clothes, you know, of, uh, well, let me just read verse 6. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. Some people say that it, it was a, sort of a symbol of, of John's humility, that it would really went along with his message of repentance. And I'm not saying it didn't do that, but, but I would suggest to you that maybe it's really allusion to the Old Testament prophets. If you look at 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8, 2 Kings 1, 8, uh, the Old Testament prophet Elijah was described as a man, and let me quote from 2 Kings 1, 8, who wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. That, that really, John is a, is a picture of Elijah. And we, knew that, we know that Elijah had to come before the Messiah could come. And, and, and here is John preaching in the wilderness, much like the prophets of old, calling God's people to repentance. Now, 
I could spend all afternoon, I think, on this whole thing of the idea of the wilderness and the Old Testament imagery that goes on here. Uh, but uh, let me just say this, that the wilderness was of great importance in the history of God's people. I mean, they had been rescued out of Egypt and they had been taken into the wilderness for 40 years where, where they wandered because of their disobedience. And so in one sense, the wilderness was sort of a, a picture of God's judgment. But it was also a picture of God's mercy because it was a prelude to God bringing them into the promised land. And, and even John baptizing them in the Jordan River uh, would have signified that is the entrance of God's people into the promised land. And just that idea of repentance uh, coming with that. And, and so it's significant that, that John is in the wilderness where God again and again met with his people in their disobedience and, and he's, but God doesn't give his people up. Even though they're wayward people, he, he continues to show his grace and his love. Even in Isaiah, as he's bringing the people back from Iran and Iraq, where Babylon was, and he's taking them across the desert, bringing them home, you know, he does so as a, as a faithful God. And so John's in the wilderness, and he's preaching a baptism of repentance. In other words, John is, is calling his people to a baptism that would signify and symbolize a heart of repentance. Now, repentance is, means that, that you change directions. You change, you change your mind, the way you think about things. So if I am walking towards sin, kids, imagine that that wall is sin, and, and I'm living my life with sin as my focus and my desire, repentance is actually turning my back on that and, and imagine that this wall is God and it's walking towards the Lord, walking towards God, where He is my focus and He is my heart's desire. And, and it's important that we, we understand that because today in modern evangelical Christianity in America, unfortunately, repentance is left out of the gospel message. We want to talk about sin, maybe, maybe, maybe not. But we talk about sin and then we say, but Jesus died on the cross to save you from your sin. And there's no mention of the idea of repentance, of, of changing direction. And so I think a lot of people really don't understand what the Christian life looks like in terms of that repentance. And we, we need to recognize, because I think that there are many people today who call themselves Christians and believers in the Lord Jesus Christ who are really have unrepentant hearts. And an unrepentant heart is one, I like how David Wells describes it, he says, it, a re, unrepentant heart is, is one that, um, that looks at sin as normal and as holiness is weird. Okay, that looks at sin as normal and holiness is weird. And I mean, how many people do you know who profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and they, yet you look at your, their lives and they look just like the world? They, they love the world. They love the priorities of the world. They, they love the sin of the world and they participate in all of it. And they see that as normal. But if you were to talk to them about loving your, your spouse, even when they're difficult, and, and laying down your life for someone else, and all these other things that goes along with a life of holiness, they would look at you and go, you're weird. Okay? That's an unrepentant heart. An unrepentant heart is one that looks for every opportunity to satisfy their lust and to make themselves look great. But the gospel says that such a lifestyle is contrary to God. If I might quote from James' letter, 
James chapter 4, verse 4, James 4, 4, James says to the church, he goes, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity, that is hostility with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And John the Baptist shows up on, on the scene. He's the voice in the wilderness calling his hearers out of the world to repent and to come to God. And, and what's so striking about this is, is that as John is preaching this message of repentance, who's he preaching to? Look at your text. He's preaching to God's covenant people. Look at verse 5. And it says, All the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him. This, these are where the Jews lived. This is where God's people lived. And so John, John the Baptist is not preaching to Gentiles and unbelievers. He's preaching to men who have been circumcised, to women who belong to the covenant community, and, and confess that God is the true and the living God. And yet, John proclaims to them a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now that ought to be striking to us. If I might take that and put that in sort of modern day language for us, it would be like John preaching to church members and saying, don't trust in your church membership. God looks at your heart. Don't trust in the privileges, the covenant privileges. God looks at your heart. You know, we're not to take joy in the privileges we have as God's people, but rather to take joy in the God who gives us those privileges. And as Reformed believers, we, we need to hear this. Because uh, we can fall into the trap of taking more joy in the Reformed faith, in, in our Reformed heritage, in our Calvinistic theology, than we can in the God who reformed His church and gave us this theology, right? And uh, we can put more confidence in that. But the reality is, the people who John preached to were God's people nationally, but not necessarily spiritually. And so there was this obstacle that was in the way. And so John, it was necessary for John to come and sort of get rid of that obstacle, to lay the lands low, to, to announce that the king was coming. And, and their, their obstacle was, was not their ignorance or their lack of knowledge of God. They knew who Yahweh was. Their problem was their sin. And we have a tendency, uh, as one person put it so well, we have a tendency to think small thoughts of sin. And typically this is because we think small thoughts of God. We have small thoughts about sin because we have small thoughts about God. And that's where Israel was at the time. And so John came preaching Jesus. And he came preaching the exalted Jesus. Look at verse 7. And he preached saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. Now, in those days, people walked everywhere. Yes, there were donkeys and yes, there were horses and, you know, uh, chariots and, and things like that. But for the most part, people walked. And the roads were dirty and they were dusty. And, and people threw things in the street. And animals did things in the street, so there was manure and other stuff on the street. So you can only imagine that as you're walking uh, down the road, how dirty your feet would, would be. But, 
let's just imagine that you're walking on a path and you get home and you're wealthy so you have slaves and so as you get home your family greets you and, and your slaves are there as well and and as you enter the house all the slaves step back except one okay this is the lowly slave okay his job would have been to go and get a bowl and get a towel and bend down and wash all that gunk off your feet. Unfasten your sandals, take them off, clean them up, clean your feet. The other servants wouldn't have done that. That was beneath them, but he was the lowly servant. He was like the last man on the totem pole. Just, just so you can understand the gravity of this, in a Jewish household, it was illegal for a slave to be a Jew. It had to be a Gentile. And only a Gentile was lowly enough to wash the owner's feet. Okay, so now grasp what John is saying here. John is saying to his audience, I'm not even worthy to stoop down and untie his sandals. So if Jesus walked in and all the servants stepped back and there was this one lowly servant that stepped forward to wash Jesus' feet, that lowly position, I'm not even worthy to fill that. Jesus is so much greater than, than who I am. John goes on and he says in verse 8, he says, I baptize you with water, but Jesus will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Do you hear what he's saying? That I baptize you with water, but there is one who is coming after me who will baptize you with God himself. Only God can pour His Spirit on, on His people. And so John says, I am unworthy because here is Jesus who is, who is the Son of God who is coming after me. Now maybe you're here this morning and, and you're going in the wrong direction and, and you need to actually turn and head back to God. Maybe like God's people did as John called God's people to repentance. Maybe you need to repent too as well. Maybe your life is such that you're walking this direction in terms of sin where you need to turn and you need to do a 180 and you need to turn your heart back to the Lord. You're going the wrong way and you need to come back. This is one of those things that, that happens when you become a Christian. When, when you become a Christian, your mind changes about absolutely everything. Now, it doesn't just happen all at once. It's sanctification. It happens a little over time. But God changes us. He gives us a new heart. And before you become a Christian, though, it's, it's all about me. All roads lead to who? Me. And if people would just get that in their minds, life would be so much easier, right? Don't we sometimes live that way? The, the problem with the sinner is, is that he can't get to God because all the roads lead back to himself. You know, all of his thoughts are about him, what he wants, his pleasures, how he'll spend his time and his money, how he raises his family. It's all about himself. Even in his relationships with others, it's still all about him. He, even the friends that he has, he, he, he has them because he likes the way they make him feel. And, and he enjoys being with them. In his marriage, uh, it's all about what he can get out of that relationship. You know, when, when I stop getting what I want out of that relationship, or, or it's required that I somehow sacrifice myself, that's when people oftentimes distance themselves from their spouses, Right? You know people like this, right? You work with people like this. 
they say, you know, it's not my fault, it's my spouse's fault. You know, the real problem is we're just incompatible. And so they want to leave the marriage relationship because it's no longer about them. But when the gospel comes, it calls us to have a completely changed of mind, to reorganize the complete way that we're thinking. When, when God invades our thinking, all of our thoughts begin to be about Him. All of our affections and all of our desires are about God. And all of our choices are about Him as well. It's no longer about what I want, but what do you want, O oh Lord? What do you want, my God? My choice of TV shows is no longer based on what I enjoy, but the real question is, is will this please God? in what I'm watching. It's no longer about how I spend my money, but how do I steward the money that God has given to me and entrusted me with. It's not about my body, what I allow to come in through my eyes or, or what I listen to with my ears. I no longer have a right to live unto myself because I have been bought with a price. That's what the gospel is about. And my question to you this morning is, have you turned to Him? Have you gotten to that point where you realize that you have been walking away from God? And maybe you're walking away from Him, but what's so bad is you've been doing it in church the whole time. You know, that, you know maybe you're one of these people that you never miss a Sunday. You're here every time. You've never live-streamed once. You've always been in person. You're a super, you look really good on the outside, but you pretend to be walking towards God when in reality, the whole time, you've been walking away from Him. Or maybe you're here this morning and you are His child. But you know, as you hear the message this morning, you realize that your heart has not been given to Him as it ought. That really, you have said, Lord, I will give you this and this and this, but this I'm going to just do on my own. I'm going to live the life the way I want to live. Well, John is baptizing the people um, with a baptism of repentance, a symbolizing of, of a cleansing. Because sin makes us morally filthy, and you have no well, way to make yourself clean. And John the Baptist is, is a picture of the cleansing power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a picture of what Christ will do. And, and as sinners knelt down and in, in the water, and John scooped up that water and he poured it on their heads. Uh, he did so as a symbol of cleansing. Ha have you ever been cleansed from your sin? Ha have you come to God conscious that your sin has stained your soul? That no matter what you do, you, you can't um, get away from it? It may be things that, that you have done. It may be sins that you have committed. But it also may be sins that others have done to you, that people have sinned against you, that they have corrupted, that they have made you feel dirty, sins that have left a grubby mark on your soul. And we need someone to cleanse us. Now, our family understands stains, and primarily because of me. Okay, I'll just confess my sins. I drop stuff on my shirt all the time. I blame it on my beard. It must fall on my beard and then fall on my shirt. I don't know. But, you know, my wife is saying to me all the time, Rick, when you get done with that shirt, would you take it off? I need to treat it. You know? And it, and it used to be stain stick or some other stain remover. Now, 
we have the almighty OxyClean, okay? And, uh, you know, and so she's like, can I OxyClean that shirt when you get done? Because there is a stain. And if OxyClean can't get it out, guess what? We just have to live with the stain. You know, because it just can't be removed, right? Well, there are those who are listening to me this morning who are living with the stain of your sin. And you have tried everything you can. You have oxycleaned your life the best way you know how, but it didn't work. And you feel the filth of your sin every day. And maybe you're even embarrassed by it. But what can you do? You've done everything you can. Well, God, through John, is saying Christ has come to cleanse you and to wash you clean. He is even greater than oxyclean, and he can take away your sin. But Christ not only cleanses us, but he also deals with the guilt of our sin. If, if you look at verse 4, John appears baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The sins we have committed makes us guilty in the presence of God. And we need his forgiveness. But we can't forgive ourselves. We can't. Only God can grant us for forgiveness. Has your sins been forgiven? It is this forgiveness that only Jesus Christ can complete. But I also want you to notice that as we look at this passage and, and we see that John cleanses, that John, that there is forgiveness of guilt. Uh, God's work in the heart of a person is so complete, it's beyond our comprehension. That John even proclaims how Christ will pour out his Holy Spirit on his people, the church. Look at verse 8. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. That when God makes us clean, he makes us new. He puts his presence within us. He gives us his Holy Spirit. Now, now, what does that mean? Well, we could, here again, spend all afternoon on this, but turn, if you would, to Acts chapter 1. And I know you're very familiar with Acts 1.8 that talks about how when the Holy Spirit comes, you will receive power, right? And, uh, and that witness will cause you to witness out to all the different parts of, of the country. But go to Acts 1 and go a little earlier to verses 4 and 5, where Jesus says, And while staying with them, he ordered them, not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. You see, the Holy Spirit comes with such great power uh, in the life of a believer that these apostles, who were once fearful, once cowards, after Christ had been crucified, that they were in hiding, and, and yet the Holy Spirit has come upon them and they are transformed. They are bold. They are courageous. They are ambassadors of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Peter, who once denied Jesus, stands up before thousands of people and he proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ, calling people to repentance and faith. And multitudes come to faith through Peter's preaching. Brothers and sisters, the Holy Spirit has come upon the church to transform it and to empower it. And I guess I just want to ask us this this morning. Have we begun to realize the power that dwells in the life of our congregation? Have we? I mean, use your imagination once again to go back to first century Rome 
and imagine these Christians in the catacombs hearing the Gospel of John read and to hear that the one that they have put their faith in is the Messiah. And we know that because John has come as the forerunner and he has fulfilled that. And so Jesus is the real deal. He's not a fake Messiah. He is truly the King. And so their hope is in the right place. But not only that, but he is a Messiah who forgives and cleanses and empowers them with the Holy Spirit. So no matter what they face, they walk around, not in their own strength, but they walk around with the power of the living God within them. Are we believers who are powerfully empowered by the Holy Spirit? If you are a Christian, you are. But sometimes we don't get it. Sometimes we don't see it. Paul, in writing to the Ephesians, um, they had the same trouble. Uh, turn, if you would, with me, just as we close, to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 21. Paul says to these believers, he writes, For this reason, because I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards the saints. In other words, I, I not, I, I, I've heard that you guys have become believers. As a matter of fact, I see the fruits of repentance in your life. Okay? There, there is a, a, there's faith and there is love there. And he says, I don't cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the what? The immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. The same power that Jesus Christ has that established him at the right hand of the Father is the same power that dwells within us. It is the Spirit of the living God. Do you believe that? Now Paul says, I'm praying for you, brothers and sisters at Ephesus, because I know that you may know this, but you may not get it. And you know what? I'm praying for us, brothers and sisters at Kirk of the Plains, that we get it, that we see God's power. You know, in just a few minutes, believe it or not, I'm going to be done with my sermon. You're like, thanks. And after that, we're going to pray. We're going to sing. I'm going to give you God's blessing and we're going to respond to that in praise, in song and then we're going to leave this place after we fellowship for a while. We're going to leave this place. But as you do, as you leave and you go out to the world, do you expect this week to be the same as this past week? You are empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. And so this week as you face the struggle with sin that has been after you this week. Do you understand that you have the power of God to look to and to rely upon and to pray to God and to ask Him to put to death that sin that is in your heart? Do you, do you recognize that as you, as you go this week that 
as you live your life, as you pray to the Lord, it's not just praying to the ceiling, but you are praying to the living God who has such great might and power. He can answer your prayers and He can change you and He can cause you to walk a life of holiness such that people see you and they say, you're different. You're weird. And they want to understand why you're that way. And the Spirit of God emboldens you to tell them about Jesus Christ. And it's our prayer then that the Spirit of God would work in that person's heart and they would come to faith in Him. And guess what? Next Sunday, you have a visitor to bring to church. Do you believe that's even possible? Do you believe that God is big enough to do that? I don't know if He will. God moves as He so chooses. But our question is, is do we believe Him? Do we believe in His cleansing work? Do we believe in His freeing grace that pays for the guilt of our sin? Do we believe in His power that works within us to His glory and His praise? Please bow with me if you would. excited the Messiah has come what good news to hear the Son of God has come to save sinners and Lord we come to you today so thankful and with hearts full of praise to you to worship you for the work that you uh, are doing in the hearts of your people we pray O Lord that you would open our eyes and enlighten us to see what you are doing in us the reality of of who we are in, the, in your work in our hearts. Oh Lord, may we see your great might and your power. Lord, let us not face life just as the mundane, as the ordinary things of life. But Lord, may we look to you, oh God, to work in your people and in your church to bring glory and honor and praise to your name. It is our prayer, Lord, today that you would bring revival to our cities. That you would bring revival, Lord, to our lives. God, that we would be a people who are seeking your holiness and walking in who we are in Jesus Christ. That we would be a, a, a people preaching to those that we come in contact with, seeing the Spirit of God work through your word to bring the dead back to life. Oh Lord, we thank you so much that you are a great and an awesome God. We ask for your forgiveness, Lord, when we are frail and weak. Help us, O Lord, to trust you. We read in Mark's Gospel that, that, that John came preaching a message of repentance and that many came repenting. In other places, we read that they showed the fruits of repentance. Lord, may we live such lives before you. 
We thank you and pray this in your name. Amen.